Good morning. We are gathering together to worship our Lord now through the study of God's Word. And so what I'd love to do is to invite you to take your scriptures and turn with me now to the uh, 14th chapter of the book of Zechariah, found in the back of the Older Testament. And today, chapters 14, verse 1 through 7, introduce us to the the subject of the Battle of Armageddon. So I'd love for you to be able to find your way there, and you're going to be linking this up to what you will see in Revelation chapter 16, furthermore, uh, where there are some strategic verses that describe the battle to a greater extent. Verses 1 through 7, a 5th century B.C. prophet, and here he's describing words that have direct implications for all of humanity through all of time. I'd like to begin reading in verse 1. And here now, you and I, we find these words. Behold, days coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the house is plundered, and the women raped, and half of the city shall go out into exile. But the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. And in that day there shall be no light, cold, frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time, there shall be light. And so this is an extraordinary event that will be taking place in all prior battles that Israel has endured are simply installments that lead to the ultimate and final battle that's being described here, which is also described in Revelation chapter 16. Let's look to our Lord together in prayer. And so, Father, what we want to do now is to be able to explore your word together. We can see the events of the days in which we live. And there will be common questions asked, such as, where is all this headed? Where does all this lead? How does this affect me and my family? And these are important questions. In many ways, what the newscasts are offering us are on-ramps. On-ramps that will allow us to get into the 
the flow, the traffic flow, conversationally. To be able to begin to explain how today fits into tomorrow. How you are involved in orchestrating the events of all times, leading to the ultimate battle still to come. So, Father, what we want to do is to be able to explore your word together to see how your truth relates to everyday life. Important things. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Go to my ear, who had lived in Milwaukee, became prime minister of Israel at a certain point in time. She was involved in various uh, interviews through the course of her, her time in office. And when asked about her relationship to American politicians, she says, oh, I get along very well with American politicians. In fact, I make it my business. She had this, this laugh, unmistakable. You knew it was her the moment it began to erupt in a, in a room. And she would say at one point, you know, I love American presidents. They are so nice to me. But her laughter, though coarse, was infectious. But you know, I've yet to find a U.S. president who has offered me command of the Sixth Fleet. She said that with a twinkle in her eye, of course. As William Buckley once wrote, Gota looked at her people with ruthless disregard for lesser matters, and all other matters were less, lesser matters. There was a particular point in time when it seemed as though Israel once again was being threatened on all fronts. And she made this powerful statement that stands out in my mind to this very day and age. Quote, we Jews have a secret weapon in our struggle with the other nations surrounding us. We have no place to go, unquote. And when I ponder that quote, I immediately find my attention drawn to such passages as Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14 is, has been penned by a fifth century prophet. What you will find, as we've noted in prior weeks, and this is the sixth in an eight-part series from Zechariah 12 through 14, is that one of the great emphases is what is known as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, which appears 17 times in chapters 12 through 14. Other words or expressions that stand out include Jerusalem, found 22 times as well as the nation's 13. When you and I begin to explore this, what we have to bear in mind is that this pertains to a point in which in the future, 
where the Jewish people in massive numbers are returning to Israel. But my word, the very fact that in 1948, the Jews gained statehood, that in and of itself should lead one to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you and I explore the history of the Jews, the very fact that they are still in existence, let alone having statehood, is nothing short of a modern day miracle. What we find is that in the Knesset, 1950, there was a decision made, it was known as the law of return, whereby they were gonna open up immigration nonstop to allow for the Jewish people to return in vast numbers from all corners of the earth. And so what's described here in many ways is that with the regathering of God's people here in the land of Israel, there will reach a point in the future when, when Jerusalem in particular, Israel in general, will be under siege. And what I want to do now with you as we continue this series on the second coming of Jesus Christ is that from these seven verses, I want to be able to extract two significant events that are found here that I think have direct bearing upon the way in which life today points in the direction of what is still to come our way in time to come. And the first event flows out of verse 1 down through verse 3. And we're going to put it like this, as you and I, as we consider the final battle in history, note with me, very simply, the conflict described by God. The conflict described by God. You pick it up now in verse, in verse 1. And in verse 1, what you and I find is that he begins once again, as he typically does when he wants to seize your attention with the word, Behold. As we've noted, the word behold is a very visual word. He wants you to see something, process something, come to grips with something of significance. Now, something of significance is about to be communicated, and he wants his readership to fully understand it. So he says, behold, the day is coming. Now, Zechariah uses various expressions such as the day of the Lord, simply the day, the day is coming. But what interests us is that in the original language, it is worded in such a way as that this day contains a sense of being owned by God. The day that is under the ownership of the Lord. So God is in control of that day. Political leaders and military leaders cannot control this day, engineer this day, produce this day. Rather, what God has done is that he has set in motion what I might call a timetable of events. They're in keeping with his purposes for all time. And so out of that then, you've got this visual statement, behold, now with a sense of ownership pertaining to this, a day is coming, a day that is possessed, owned by God. It is coming for the Lord. Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, the relational covenantal name of the sovereign one. 
What he wants the Jewish people to do as they read this, as he wants Jew and Gentile alike as we collect our thoughts regarding this, is to make absolutely certain we understand the significance of what this means. We have a relational, personal God who desires a personal relationship with you. That only comes when you put your faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ, Savior, Lord. Behold, a day owned by God, possessed by God, the relational sovereign one, the Lord. You see that flowing naturally, you see, out of this opening verse. And as you begin to explore what's there, maybe your mind goes back to what's taking place right now, let's say, in Israel. Our Chosen People Ministries latest newsletters. On the 10th day of the war, our staff arrived with humanitarian aid in Sapir, about 80 miles north of Eilat, which is the southernmost tip of Israel. The government transported 2,500 people from areas bordering Gaza to this small settlement. Our staff of believers discovered they had a significant need for basic necessities and helped with those needs as much as we could. But in addition to the physical work, our team engaged with people who had been on the front lines and offered support. What they desperately needed was a personal relationship with God through Yeshua that you and I know as Jesus. Some asked for prayers because they knew our staff were believers. Our staff heard the story of Talil and her two sons. They're from the city of Sidarat, one of the cities that Hamas brutalized on October 7th and Talil showed a video of terrorists heading toward her house. She said that she had never been able to fathom the horrors of the Holocaust until she had witnessed firsthand what occurred in her neighborhood. She expressed feeling like Han Frank did when she hid in her home for hours, praying that they would not be discovered and harmed. Her eldest son, who's nine years old, experienced such trauma, he stopped talking. But get this. Her eyes began to well up with tears when our staff told her about how many Christians worldwide were praying. And she began to ask questions about Yeshua. And the staff wants us to keep praying for her and her children, for healing, for salvation. This is the relational God. Behold, a day owned by God is coming, Yahweh, when the spoils will be taken from you. Now notice here, as you begin to work through this, they'll be taken from you, will be divided in your midst. And if you've studied World War II very carefully, you know that that also is what took place, where the Jewish possessions were, were sold on the black market. Well, here now you have something similar. And so the installments of what occurred during World War II leads towards this ultimate installment still to come. 
But now God's timetable in verse 1 leads to God's sovereignty being spoken of in verse 2. Notice that it does not read that all the nations will gather against Jerusalem. No, it reads, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. Astounding. What you and I are reading at this point then is that God is taking responsibility for this, claiming ownership over this. He has authority. Now in this final moment, what he is saying is that I, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. You pause. Because you watch the rising escalation of anti-Semitism globally, and you ask, how does today link to tomorrow? These become on-ramps for conversations to talk with people about global matters, but we need to lead them to Jesus. No. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped, half of the city will go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And you pause, you take a deep breath, you remind yourself that from A.D. 70 to 1967, the land of Palestine was ruled by 40 different nations, overrun by military operations, but today it is under Israeli control. From 1948, the inception of statehood to the present, the Israelis have fought five national wars winning all five, while at the same time, outnumbered each and every time. This is what is described then here as the final siege. And God is allowing this to occur for his purposes, for his glory. I'm back to Chosen People Ministries, where there was Jilly. Jesus died for all sins long ago. So why has nothing changed? She asked one of our missionaries. Because most people have not accepted Jesus, Yeshua, as Savior. Have you personally invited him into your life, she was asked. We're told that it turns out Julie knew a lot about the Messiah and his sacrifice for our sins, but she had no clue about he being personal, was waiting for a personal response from her. She said, maybe you can help me make this step soon, she said. And our staff agreed and started meeting regularly with Julie to study scriptures together. And they asked, please pray. Pray for Julie. Pay for, pray for her family. So all this occurs now, and you've got a sovereign God, a personal God, a timely God. This is emerging out of verses 1 and 2. And you're saying, God, if you're involved, then God, please intervene. 
You ever been there at a very personal level? God, if you are involved, then please, Lord, intervene. And then it comes. After verse 2 comes verse 3. Kind of works that way. 3 follows 2. And the Lord will go out, you see. Now, that is a military expression. It's as if we have now reached a pivotal point in time. Turning point, if you will. The Lord will go out. And notice it says, and fight against these nations. It is the Lord who will go out to fight against the nations. He continues to get involved directly in what's here. as when he fights on the day of battle. Now these are astounding words that you are reading at this point. These are known as Jacob's trouble. In Jeremiah 30, verses 5 through verse 7. But here in verse 3, it's as if God is now saying, I have everything timed. Like in the days of Gideon or in the days of Jehoshaphat, the man of war, spoken of in Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, steps to the forefront, and now it's as if Jesus Christ appears in dramatic form. It happened in Istanbul. A visitor was going through the mosque of Sophia, standing there quietly for a time, marveling at the architecture. What amazes us is that the mosque was at one point a Christian church facility, but overrun by militant Islam turned into a place where Islamic individuals gathered together. All the Christian symbols were completely wiped out or else covered by Arabic lettering. Well, a visitor went, stood there, looked up at the dome, his heart almost stopped, grabbed a a fellow traveler by the arm and said, look, look, he's coming back. Jesus is coming back. They looked up and could see the cover-up paint that had been added over the centuries was wearing off. And the figure of Jesus Christ was beginning to show through again. And when I read that account, I thought of this passage. For you see, over the course of time, again and again and again, it seems as though everything has been covered up. And what is desperately needed is to understand that Jesus Christ will, in fact, come back again. And there is direct linkage between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, when you and I begin to explore very seriously what's happening right now, anti-Semitism globally, and the issues that are taking place right now politically, militarily, 
Your mind might go back to the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, 25 times you and I are informed that this land was a gift from Yahweh. You could easily say that it was leased, if you will, to the Jewish people. It comes with the promise of the Lord. It's a matter of grace. And there are three significant statements that I find in the book of Deuteronomy that grip my attention because, for example, in Deuteronomy 12, verse 11, it speaks of the fact that God has placed his name upon that land. Deuteronomy 12, 11, he went to make his name dwell there. Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, to put his name there. In 1 Kings 8, 16, that my name might be there, it carries with the idea of a name being positioned on a lease. One owns the property, but being leased out, if you will, uh, to another group of people. In this case, God leasing it out to the Jewish people. But God takes ownership of this land. Now, when Sarah, Abraham's wife, passed away, she was buried within that land, and that served in many ways as the initial installment used to be able to say there is more to come. And so when you and I make our way into Jerusalem, what we find is that there are extraordinary burial sites of pivotal individuals that stand out in our mind as we look from here to there all of which serve as still greater and greater degree of installments with the idea that this is property owned by God, all for his glory, all for our good. Now, verses 1, 2, and 3, with the idea of his ownership standing out, the first event then begins to unfold that as you and I consider the final battle in history, You've noted with me the conflict described by God. But now, out of verses 4 through 7, we see now the second event, the conqueror sent by God. And so you pick it up with me in verse, in verse 4. And in verse 4, on that day, do you see how that wording continues to appear and reappear? This is so extraordinarily well-timed. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, I've got a lot of believing friends, pastor friends, in fact, who, who believe that all this has already transpired and all that we now await for is Christ's return and we have new heaven and new earth. They love Jesus. But... I would point out to my friends, you have overlooked Zechariah chapter 14. Because Zechariah 14 informs us that Jesus Christ is to return and stand on the Mount of Olives. And we have yet to see that happen. So therefore, that must be a future event. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. 
by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward on the other half southward. So let's take a moment. Let's head off to Israel. Go to the Mount of Olives. Walk around. Process it. Our tour group was there. And let's say that you and I, we've gathered together and I'm offering a tour years to come. And uh, I want you now to pull out your Newer Testament, but I want you to link Zechariah 14 with what you and I find in Acts chapter 1. Because in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, Luke the physician tells us, and when he had said these things, as, as they were looking up, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you to heaven will come in the same way, I've mocked that, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, which means physically, which means visibly, which means personally. And so as not to miss out on what's being described, the physician Luke tells us in Acts 1, the next verse, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And now we connect the dots between the first and the second comings, between the Older Testament and the Newer Testament, Zechariah 14 and Acts 1. And as you are pondering this with me, as we are on our tour, we are acknowledging fact here. His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And so you look to the left, you look to the right, you're processing now what's before your very eyes, and then you begin to ponder the significance of what comes next in verse 5. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, which we sang about just a bit ago. It was a Hillsong piece, if I recall. You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. 
pause. When you and I began to examine the extent of the scriptures, there were 17 significant earthquakes that can be unpacked when you look very carefully at the passages of scripture, 17. But there are three in particular that stand out to me. One, at the time in which Jesus Christ was crucified, at that point in time when he died for your sins and he died for my sins, Matthew in chapter 27, beginning in verse 51 and following, informs you and informs me that at that point after he had said, it is finished, there was an earthquake which I would argue would be a geological response, if you will, to the finished work of Jesus Christ. But if you page over to Matthew chapter 28 and verse two, there is still another earthquake which occurs at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, once again, the earth is in, in essence responding to what is taking place spiritually. But now, here we find still another earthquake being described. It's being described in such a way that grips your attention that you and I, well, we need to be able to see how this relates to the geological and topographical region today. And so look what appears now on the screen because there's a fault line. Right now, there's a fault line that begins, that will split the Mount of Olives. It, it, it begins north of the Sea of Galilee and heads on down to Jordan Valley, River Valley through the Dead Sea. But recently, archeologically, another fault line was discovered through the Mount of Olives. And know how far it reaches? To the Valley of Azel. Look at what is here. Look at verse five, read it. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. And then to reinforce what's being stated at this point, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. I wonder what Bill Ma is thinking. You know, he's the host of Real Time. And on the final show of 2023, he who, um, well, he and I are not on the same page theologically, I want you to know. But at the same time, he, he says some things that, I see, God is doing something here. When he began by linking Christmas, it was at the end of 2023, to the war-torn region and how the little town of Bethlehem was at one point in his estimation 86% Christian in 1950, but today it's overwhelmingly Muslim. And so he said, and that's my point tonight, things change. Things change country by country, boundaries, empires, 
Palestine was under the Ottoman Empire for 400 years. But today, an Ottoman is something you put your, under your feet. After several global geographic changes throughout history, he then pointed to the audience that eventually everybody comes to an accommodation, except for the Palestinians. When you begin to ponder the significance of all of this, after World War II, 12 million ethnic G Germans got shoved out of Russia because Germany had been kind of unpopular. A million Greeks had been shut out of Turkey in 1923. A million Ghanaians of Nigeria in 1983, almost a million French out of Algeria. Nearly a million Syrian refugees moved to Germany eight years ago. Was that a perfect fit? And no one knows more, he went on to say, about being pushed off land than the Jews, including the almost kicked out of every Arab country they once lived in. Yes, TikTok fans, ethnic cleansing happens both ways. And then he showed the striking uh, reduction of Jewish populations in Arab countries surrounding Palestine. So what was his point? He wants to know where should they go if they cannot be where they are. If I give you the benefit of the doubt and say your plan for a completely Jewless Palestine isn't that all the Jews should die, what is the only other option? They move. You move all the Jews. To where, Iran? Where are they gonna move to? Texas? Well, sure, you have room, I guess, in Texas. We could put the wailing wall on the border and kill two birds with one stone. And I thought about Zechariah 14. And you start pulling all these thoughts together and how the growing anti-Semitism and you take into account the geographic, topographic, the political systems of the day, the military challenges of the day and the growing threat so that even in the last 24 hours, you could see discussions as to how Israel should be, partial, be um, partitioned out. And then you read, the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. To reiterate, and now you see how the earthquakes attest something of significance. And you see how the death and resurrection leads to this. And how the Mount of Olives points to this. And now, in a very climactic way, he then adds, and on that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, thus the title for today's teaching. Neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. 
What he is saying at this point is that it's as if this day, like no other day, will have an impact even on the celestial realm where the light of the glory of God's presence will be reflected over all of the earth and that which will be the dispenser of light, the sun and such, will then be viewed as simply the means God had used to provide light because the reality is that God is the source of light and the entire creation is going to be overwhelmed by the glory of God and it's going to involve a light such as never been experienced before. And you pull all that together and now you've looked at the sum total of all these things environmentally, ecologically, politically, militarily, and you nod your head then as you think back to what it was that, that go to my ear would have to say to you and to me. We Jews have a secret weapon in our struggle with the Arabs and with surrounding nations. We have no place to go. And I would say to you, when you don't have any place to go, look up. Watch what's coming your way. Christ is returning. And he's going to put everything back in order. Let's stand together. You revealed in these seven verses the two significant events to come. the conflict and the conqueror. We praise you that we can see the linkage between the first and the second comings of Christ, the continuity between the older and newer testaments, and how today's events give us on-ramps conversationally to talk about what will come our way. But it all starts with the fact that we have a personal God here who sent Jesus to die for our sins. So I pray, Father, for those in the prior service. I pray for those in this service. I pray for all those watching online now or in the days to come. That if there are those that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, may our minds, may our hearts be gripped by the fact Jesus died for our sins. And the only means for salvation is found through Christ and Christ alone. And for this, Father, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.